the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hey friends, welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. A show all about taking a deep dive into the mess, the gray, the tense, the stuff that doesn't have easy answers, which sometimes involves just our lives as pastors, as husbands, as fathers. Uh, But other times, the subject matter is really dark. It's really heavy. And uh, I think it's important that we dive into that too, create space for that, because it seems that even even when tragedy strikes, uh, by and large, we still seem just as interested in shouting about our sides, right? Like even just the idea of sitting in grief or sorrow can feel really foreign to us because we got to jump right to uh, conclusions or answers or responses, which aren't bad, but kind of our heartbeat from the get-go for the show is how how do we create space? Right. And we're not going to always do it um, well, I don't think. Sometimes we'll we'll certainly disagree or we'll make mistakes. But uh, by now, I think most people uh, are aware of the absolutely horrendous acts in Christchurch uh, in New Zealand mm-hmm. and um, having kind of thinking about it all all weekend long. And uh, there there have been some really beautiful stories that have come out uh, as a result. Um, some some people groups really kind of stepping up and loving people well. But, man, I got to be honest, as news of this story was just sort of flooding my news feeds, um, it was so heartbreaking to me. And I don't know if it's just more and more now because uh, because I'm a dad. Yeah. Um, I feel like that's certainly given me some perspective. And it is surprising, though, I think, again, how quickly the divide just becomes really visible. Yeah, it's crazy. I do think for me, the hardest ones, they're all hard to read about and watch the news coverage or whatever. But, man, when it's at a school or a church, because those are like my you know, center of my life, right? Like I got kids in school and I work in a church. And so even to see it in a place of worship this time, I think made it particularly hard. But you're right, man. People start to go to who can we blame and who can we yell at? And, uh, you know, the shooter left behind a manifesto for people to tear apart. And it's like, can we just start to, to say that it's not about all Muslims or all Christians or all white people or this, but that there are just dangerous fringes of all of these that we need to fight against. Can we go to that and just be like, um, you know what? Most Muslims aren't extremists. Most, you know, Christians aren't extremists. Most of And I, that's what makes me so sad. I want to be like, Hey, can we all rally together and try to figure this out and to keep the fringe from constantly, you know, doing these things. And I know that's pie in the sky that people can always figure out ways to create carnage and harm. Yeah, But like you said, we go so quickly to laying blame and trying this as, instead of just grieving. Like, this is awful that, like, what is it, like 50 people or whatever yeah. died of all ages. Um, and, you know, th- 
it's on the other side of the world, but it still feels so common. Like it still feels like something we deal with all the time. Yeah. So I first want to make sure we're grieving, even though it's not in our country. For most of us, it's not of our uh, uh, same faith background. It's not that none of that matters. This is humanity. Yeah. Um, just, just, uh, just a terrible situation. I think for me, the turning point in this story was seeing the photo mm-hmm. of just the the blood stained carpet aftermath. Mm. Like just something about that photo. Like, you know, the article went on to kind of describe at what point in their service this would have likely happened. And it was this this moment of, you know, meditation of of quiet, of stillness, mm. you know, and, and maybe not dissimilar from moments of stillness or prayer or quiet that we have in our churches. And yeah. I'm trying to wrap my brain around like maybe the most peaceful time of a gathering mm-hmm. and having that so abruptly interrupted by just the most horrific thing imaginable and you're right of all ages like it isn't you know and you know the guy that met him at the door and greeted him as brother you know and like learning a little bit about that guy's story and reading about how how jewish communities in the same town are responding and the way that the prime minister is like entering into this grief for me it's a it's a both and i do think as a as a culture particularly in the west we don't grieve well Mm -mm. but i also know that it can't it can't just be grief, yep. right? It can't stay there either. Like it, and that's that's such a a tough balancing act for me because one, one end, I, I don't think I think unfortunately this stuff is happening so frequently. We're hearing about it so much more, and there's been a whole lot of other articles that have come out since then about like, well, what about this thing that's happening over here in Africa or this thing that's happening over here in in South America? Like, yeah, that that too. That it's all horrific. I think yep. sometimes it's easy for our brains just to say it's too much, and we just sort of shut it away. So yeah, step one, how do we allow this to hit us? The, like you were saying, just the humanity, the horrific loss of life. But two, how do we find a way forward that isn't just political screaming or exactly. religious re- rhetoric? You know, I think uh, there's been a lot of people saying it's got to be more than just thoughts and prayers, right? Mm-hmm. But then somebody else saying, oh, why are they hating on thoughts and prayers? I'm like, <laughs> no, that's not what they're saying. They're saying, yeah, yeah. you know, and I don't know. It's a really, it's a tough conversation. I know that they're, you know, less than 48 hours later, they're, they're changing their gun laws. And so mm-hmm. people are saying, you know, what about us? Why not us? Some are criticizing the prime minister, but some are saying, look at the way that she's embodying grief and sorrow by like meeting with these people and other people are like, ah, it's just a publicity. St-. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it just, everyone ah, has an opinion. Right. Everyone's got a, got a take. That's what we do in our culture, right? We have takes on everything. Um, but I, I do, I guess I feel so strongly that we just want to, uh, this is not a, this is not a tragedy. Um, it's not simply a Muslim tragedy any more than like, you know, uh, when something happens here, like in Parkland in Florida, it wasn't just a high school tragedy or a Florida tragedy. This is a human, this is a tragedy of humanity. Right. And we want to then take the time. You're right. We do need to take the time to ask the hard questions. Like, why do these things keep happening? And we, uh, you know, who have hope in Jesus, it, you know, how do we show compassion and how do we show unity and how do we show something different than what is being shown across the board? Like, man, with something we're doing today, just to give people a heads up, starting in the next segment, uh, and to be honest with you, this feels a little risky, but we're going to talk to a guy by the name of Sabil Ahmed, Ahmed, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, who, uh, who deals in, um, you know, uh, Islamophobia and Muslim studies and how to build bridges and all this stuff. And we, you and I just said, I think that's something we can do. That'd be a good start to have a conversation with somebody. Right. I mean, we literally say it, it's a part of our intro every day. Yep. We want to engage in a dialogue, you know, and I think. Brene Brown said that people are hard to hate up close. Yeah. 
um, which can feel a little pie in the sky. It could feel a little, uh, a little tweetable, but I, I think there's some really profound like gospel truth to that, that when we feel inclined to demonize in our fear or hatred to like widen the chasm, yep. how, do, how do we actually lean in? And Jesus even has some pretty profound things to say about how we are to treat those that we perceive as our enemy. Right. Right. We're, we're not just to love those who are like, Ooh, look and act a little different. Yep. He's like, Nope. Even those that you would deem your enemy, pray for them. Yes. Love them. Treat them as better than yourself. Like that to me, it's so easy to like become inoculated to those words of Jesus because in my mind, I picture them like on a flannel graph in a Sunday school room. <laughs> but like, what about, what about when we're, when we're face to face with, like acts of evil. Yep. Like, did Jesus have this in mind? Was did he know just how how evil the world would get yep. when he ushered those words? And I think it would be naive to think that he wasn't witnessing real evil when he said those words. It's yep. easy to think ah, he didn't he didn't mean this enemy exactly. Like you know, what Nero? What about Christians on spikes lighting yep. part? Like he he was very familiar with very real Absolutely. evil, and the call still. To love our enemies. How do we actually do yeah. that, but have an important conversation about a way forward and a way forward together? That emphasis of doing it together is is so much easier said than done. But you you hit the nail on the head. Like that's that's been our hope and vision for the show from the get go. So I I think having Doctor Ahmed in in the studio is going to be profoundly interesting and a really helpful way for us to to hopefully build some bridges to yes. have a dialogue. And I think something interesting you said something important was. Uh, I think people are so frustrated by thoughts and prayers because it seems like a, a get out of jail free card. Like, yeah. oh, I don't do anything except give thoughts and prayers. But as Christians, we do believe prayer makes a difference and matters. Yes. So I think it's thoughts, prayers, and action. So it's not a call to not pray. We need to be praying for these people in New Zealand who've gone through this, or on, you know, sadly the next one that happens here because it's going to happen again. Uh, we need to be people who who pray for them and pray for them in their sorrow, mourn with those who mourn. Uh, but then also think about what is, as a church and as a culture, can we be doing to kind of start to solve this a little bit? That's right. Well, this is just the tip of the iceberg. We're going to continue this conversation with a in-studio guest, Dr. Sabil Hamed uh, of uh, Gain Peace, and also one who has done extensive work and research on helping uh, engage dialogue across denominational and political barriers. And uh, I think it's going to be an absolutely fascinating conversation here on The Common Good on AIM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, a show all about diving into the mess and the gray, the tense, the stuff that doesn't tie up with a nice bow, stuff that isn't always black and white, because that's the reality of where we live most of the time. You can find us online, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com. And uh, I am absolutely thrilled to have with us in the studio today, Dr. Sabil Ahmed. Thank you so much for being here, sir. Thank you for calling me. Uh, Just to give you a little bit of context. Uh, Dr. Ahmed is the executive director of the Gain Peace Project, an outreach project of, of Islamic Circle of North America. Dr. Sabil has given many outreach presentations and workshops in various cities, including schools, universities, libraries, churches, and public places in the U.S. His topics include Islam 101, Sharia law, myths versus facts, freedom of speech, comparative religion, and youth empowerment. After completing his medical education from the Caribbean, he decided to dedicate his time as a full-time educator of Islam to tackle Islamophobia and to convey the peaceful message of Islam. And Mm -hmm. uh, I think by now, most everyone on planet Earth is aware of the absolutely horrendous acts 
uh, in Christchurch on Friday. And uh, I'm wondering if you could just share a little bit from your vantage point, what, what has been the reaction, the response of uh, the Muslim community that you're a part of? I start in the name of God, the most beneficent and merciful, and uh, greet all the listeners with the greeting of peace. Mm-hmm. As soon as I found out on Friday night, before going to bed, 50 people have been butchered. The very first reaction that I had was, this is not just a calamity for the Muslims, mm. this is a calamity for humanity. Mm. The reason I mentioned that is because as soon as I found out, my mind, my heart went towards a passage in the Quran that says that taking one innocent life is like taking the life of all of humanity. Mm. So I felt like 50 times over, humanity was butchered. That was the immediate reaction. Wow. Wow. And what has the general feel been uh, in the Muslim community in the area? Is it, is it uh, just a heaviness, a sadness, I'm assuming? What has it been for uh, people in the community? Even though a big part of the community were shocked, however, many leaders, we were not shocked, by the way, hmm. because the environment in our country, environment in Europe, in Australia, it has been created hmm. in which uh, these kind of things are about to happen, unfortunately. So even though it was sad and frustrating and, uh, you know, just depressing, yeah. but people were not shocked because, um, unfortunately, this is a reality. Hmm. Okay, so, so Brian and I are both pastors, and oftentimes there are things done in the name of Jesus at a global level that he and I both look at each other and think, oh, I, okay, I want to distance myself from, from that rhetoric or that, that behavior. What, what is that like as someone who's, who's a leader in this community to get news, like you were just saying, like in one hand we're shocked, in the other hand we're, we're not for any number of reasons. How, how do you distance yourself from those types of acts, those types of behaviors, either like at a micro or a macro level? How, how do you actually navigate that? You know, I have been telling uh, my volunteers and my co-Muslims that uh, let's not fall into the trap in which some people, they label radical Islamic terrorism. Hmm. And they kind of paint all the Muslims with the brush of the radicalism and right. terrorism. Right. So I mentioned to them, let's avoid the word white nationalism or white supremacy hmm. or Christian extremist. Mm-hmm. Because violence and hate, these are acts they can be done by any person, if hmm. person of faith or no faith. So hate has no faith. Hmm. So it's important when we heard about uh, this guy, Brenton, who is from the white race, unfortunately, and he did that act. So we should not blame the white race for that. We should not blame Christianity for what uh, Andre Brovik in Norway. Yeah. In 2012, he butchered 78 people. Christianity should not be held responsible. Hmm. In the same way, when we, people of conscience, when we hear anything done in the name of Islam, Muslims and Islam should not be held responsible. Hmm. So we should. So one of the ways we can tackle bigotry, racism, Islamophobia is not to attach an act with a faith, race, or culture. Hmm. Is that your um, uh, your experience? Do most people here uh, attach Islam to all the radicals, right? Uh, the same way that we don't want to be attached to the radical Christians doing things in the name of Jesus. Is that your experience, though, that, that basically all, all Muslims get lumped in uh, with the stories we hear on the news of the most radical people doing whatever? Well, it's not just my experience, by the way. It's not my feeling. It's a fact. Uh-huh. I was looking at one of the video clips from Australia. Yeah. It says that um, each day about 
close to 80 to 100 times australian media not our, our media by the way hmm. just the australian media in a small country they use the word either radical or extremist or hmm. uh, you know terrorist with hmm. the word islam muslims of quran hmm. so people get brainwashed hmm. and it's not just a feeling it's just how it is yeah so that okay so that has uh, a number of implications and and i'd mentioned before before we started recording to you that um so i grew up in dearborn michigan and you identified immediately that Dearborn, uh, at least 10 years ago, had the largest Muslim population per capita in the world outside of the Middle East. So this this is a, a conversation that's actually very close and personal for me. Um, living in Dearborn uh, during 9-11 and having friends um, who were a part of Muslim communities in various degrees walk me through what it's like for their faith to be introduced at a global scale at an event like that. And it was something that I'd never really considered. At, you know, I've been going to church since I was eight. I've been a Christ follower as long as I can remember. What what, what is it like uh, personally to navigate exactly what you're talking about? Like acts being directly attached to you as a person, to your faith, to your tradition, um, and how and how do you actually process that? So obviously, it's frustrating when we mm-hmm. hear it, especially right. when it comes from the higher ups in the White House, in the Washington, and the public officials. Mm. But at the end of the day, we cannot prevent what is coming from there. What we can do is we can use the opportunities with the neighbors and the colleagues and mm. using the media, the social media, mm. to correct the people and educate the people. Mm. So that's what Gain Peace is all about. Got it. I was really, we knew you were coming on. And like we do when a lot of people come on, we just Google your name and wait, you know, all sorts of stories. It's always, it's a fascinating thing we have at our fingertips, right, these days. Uh-huh. Uh, and I came across a fascinating article that just last month you were honored, am I getting this right, by the mayor of Morton Grove for just helping your neighbors during the winter storm. And I, it's a great, uh, very impressive what you and your family, I believe, did, uh, writing letters to people if you need help. It was during the whole, uh, when it was like negative 100 degrees outside, yeah, right? Yeah. What did you, I'm, I'm curious, what did you guys do, but more so, why'd you do it? Like, what was behind it? Well, the, there were many reasons. Three reasons. Number one reason is I put myself in the shoes of any prophet or messenger. May that be Jesus, Moses, Abraham, Muhammad, peace be upon all of them. What would they do? Would they hide in the houses hmm. or would they be concerned about the neighbors? Hmm. So that was first motivation. Second motivation is there are many sick and, uh, and old people around me. Even one today called me, by the way, hmm. for help. So there can be many people who may be sick, who may be, you know, who knows, injured. Yeah. And number three reason to teach to teach my own children, to teach the youth. Hmm. You know, they're so much into gadgets and uh, <laughs> just, you know, social media. Right, right. Just drop those things at least for an hour, pick yes. up a shovel and go help the neighbors. That's yeah. so good. That's something that I think <laughs> could challenge all of us, to be honest. I'm looking at the screen right now and I've been on my phone <laughs> most of the morning. I think what, a, what, a, what an invitation that is. Well, if you're just joining us, we've been talking with Dr. Sabir Ahmed, and he is sharing a little bit about his perspective. He is also the executive director of the Gain Peace Project. And so coming up next, we're going to continue talking to him about uh, his work and some of the misconceptions and uh, a way forward, hopefully. That's been uh, our goal from day one on this show. This is The Common Good on AIM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, a show about taking a deep dive into the gray, the mess, the stuff that doesn't have easy answers, and sometimes that includes grief and heartache 
and sorrow and confusion. And we've been joined by Dr. Samil Hamed, who's the executive director of the Gain Peace Project, an outreach project of Islamic Circle of North America, talking uh, about a number of different things, not the least of which are the tragic acts of uh, New Zealand on Friday. And hopefully, uh, as is the name of the show, to find some commonalities, to find a way forward to bring some good to the world. And um, I remember a few years ago, actually, when when ISIS was really kind of gaining global um, notoriety, global um, awareness. I, I was at a, a different church, and I asked my office administrator, would you just set up coffee with any any Muslim leader in the area that would have me? And she was met by first uh, suspicion from a lot of them. Like, why why is your pastor want to have coffee with us? But what happened as a result, though, in sharing coffee, sharing meals, is we actually got to, like, enter into each other's story a little bit and and realize that both both sides had some misconceptions about the other. And one of the things that we kept coming back to was that both of our books speak about loving our neighbor, speak, speak about, you know, that there's something that, okay, we can agree on that at least. Let's, let's bring good to our neighborhood, to our communities, to our families. And uh, what I was also amazed by, though, was just how welcoming every conversation was, that no question was off the table. And that, that really was a pretty transformative season for my life. And I'm, I'm curious now, like in light of media coverage and news and polarizing conversations and echo chambers and confirmation bias, what, what are some short-term solutions and long-term solutions uh, as you see it? All right. Uh, a short-term solution, obviously, since the media's attention is there on this tragedy and on the Muslims, now the Muslim leaders and the common Muslims and the mosque and the schools, Islamic schools, yeah. they should utilize the media, the same media, and, and share with them how do we feel and what can we do to prevent this. Hmm. That's immediately what we should grab the attention. Hmm. For the long term, these are the four or five things really quickly. Many of our non-Muslims, they have not met a Muslim. Actually, according to mm. the Pew Research, 67% of our fellow brothers and sisters, they have never met a Muslim. Wow. So meeting a person many a times breaks down the barriers, psychological yes. and cultural yeah. barriers. Right. That's number one. Mm. Number two is, let's not get our news about anyone, especially about Islam from the narso, <laughs> well, let me say it, from the fake news and the Fox News and the White House, all right? <laughs> Let's get it from the authentic sources. And the authentic source of Islam is the Quran and the sayings of Muhammad, peace be upon him. Hmm. And meet a Muslim and ask the questions. Hmm. And, and number three, really important, is uh, come to the mosque, by the way. Again, 90% of the people, they have never been to the mosque. And people have many rumors. Hmm. You know, there is a big... Uh, rally in front of a mosque with the flags and people around. Hmm. When we found out that there is a rumor going around, that's what they said, hmm. that there are weapons of mass destruction hmm. in the basement of the mosque. Wow. So wow. we called the imam and we told them, you know, why don't you, why don't you invite them? Get some donuts and pizza and invite them. <laughs> and they came in the mosque, they saw the peace of the mosque, hmm. and now their perception changed right. about the mosque. Wow. So meeting and learning and educating and working together for common causes. Hmm. This is what we can do. Hmm. Along that same lines, obviously theological differences or whatever, but but like you said, there there's a common teaching of loving our neighbors and, and being good neighbors to one another, to everybody. Paint a picture what you think uh, our community uh, locally and you know nationally could look like if churches, uh, if the Christians and the Muslims started actually working together. Uh, where are some spots you think that that uh, that the community would be benefited as that takes place? 
Well, if you look into the scriptures, mm-hmm. I mean, I read the Bible, by the way. Hmm. I'm a Bible collector. Hmm. I have 300 Bibles in my collection. Wow. Wow. And my wife is not happy about that. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's like my baseball card collection. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Right? It's sort of like that. <laughs> Just bigger. <laughs> Just bigger. <laughs> so when we read the Bible and the Quran, I saw about 65% things in common. Mm-hmm. They believe in Jesus. We consider him to be a mighty prophet. Uh, Mary is the only lady mentioned by name in the whole Quran. Hmm. Not the mother, not the, the wife or the daughter of Muhammad, peace be upon him. Right? And uh, the greatest prophet of the Old Testament is the most mentioned prophet in the Quran. Mm-hmm. Who is that, by the way? I mean, you're the doctor. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Pastor um, Moses, hmm. right? <laughs> so these are the commonalities. So, so when I meet our fellow brothers and sisters, our Christians yeah. and Jews, I let them know. There they may always be differences, hmm. but we have more things in common. Hmm. And, bu- and, and coming to the platform of commonality, we can do many, many projects to better the humanity. Right, right. Okay, so, so in light of that, then speak to some of the misconceptions. I, I imagine I could think of probably a couple of them, but I, I, your experience is so much more visceral, so much more personal. What, what are some of the misconceptions um, that you would like to dispel? One immediate misconception, uh, mis- misconception is that people may think that Muslims are new to the country. But mm. it's a historical fact. According to New York Times, Muslims are living here since 500 years. Mm. Yeah. And Muslims are here as long as our Jewish and our Christian brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. Number one. Mm. Number two, there were many Muslims who, who, who fought in the civil war, in, in, uh, in the revolutionary war. Mm. 50,000 Muslim physicians. Maybe one of them is your doctor. Maybe right? <laughs> <laughs> wow. They're helping humanity. Mm. Uh, so we are here in and, and the tallest building uh, in Chicago, right? At one time in the whole world was what? Sears Tower. Correct. The main architect of that was none other than a Muslim architect, hmm. Fazlur Rahman. Hmm. So these are the contributions and achievements of the Muslims in the last 500 years. Wow. Along with other misconceptions, jihad, mm-hmm. sharia, women, violence, right? Yeah, right, right. Yeah. I'm curious, uh, We're as we said already, we're both pastors. What is, I'm trying to get this way down to something we can just get our arms around and have some action points. What would your one or two pieces of advice to be to a local pastors. Like, here's what we would love to see. Uh, here's what a partnership looks like, or here's a piece of advice I can give to you as a pastor of a local church. Hmm. Sure. So if you go back to your Sunday pastorship, mm-hmm. you can mention that come to the mosque because Muslims are in a way, we're not afraid, by the way, but we are uh, on a high alert hmm. that, you know, how our neighbors are helping and supporting. Maybe people are suspicious. So we have many, many open houses so oh. you can come to the mosque, come to our homes, hmm. have a hot tea, have a good samosa with us, hmm. and invite us to your churches. Yeah. Face-to-face meeting, excellent. Hmm. But the projects that we can do together, you know, Islam is really big about uh, strengthening the families, right. fighting against racism and poverty and, uh, you know, drug abuse and gangs, all of yeah. that. So there are many projects Muslims are doing. So it doesn't matter any denomination, no denomination. We can still work together mm-hmm. because we are all humans. We want best for humanity. That's good. That's good. Okay, so I know that for some people, uh, maybe they're not ready actually to make a physical step to meet someone face-to-face, but they're listening right now, and they're at least curious. You've piqued their interest, something that they haven't maybe considered or thought about before. Um, are there some resources? Are there websites? Would you just point people to a couple of places they could go 
to, to learn a little bit more. You talk about, you know, being mindful of where we get our news from, where our resources come from. Uh, just anyone listening to saying, I'm not ready to drive somewhere yet, but I'm, I'm curious to learn more. Would you just point them in the right direction? Excellent. So we have a website called Gain Peace, G-A-I-N Peace.com. Got it. Person going there for education, they will find resources on Islam. Hmm. They can call the number 1-800-662-ISLAM. Call there, ask any question. If you want a copy of the Quran, we could send it to you. Wow. But at the end of the day, you know, as brothers and sisters, we need to learn, educate, work together for better humanities. Mm. I appreciate that. You've been listening to Dr. Sabil Hamed, the executive director of Gain Peace Project, an outreach project of Islamic Circle of North America. Doctor, thank you so much for joining thank us on today's you. show. Thank you very much. Really appreciate that. This has been The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm, a show all about hopefully taking a deep dive into the mess and the gray and the stuff that doesn't have easy answers. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. You can also go to 1160hope.com. All the previous shows are there. Plus, we're podcasted for your enjoyment. So you can find us anywhere that you get podcasts, and we'd love to uh, hear from you and interact with you. And we're very excited to have on the phone a very special guest, Cindy Boston. Cindy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Uh, Cindy is the vice president of Heartbeat International. She previously served on the organization's board of directors and chaired the board for Missouri's Alliance for Life for six years. And Heartbeat is also uh, the sponsor for the Fernando Ortego concert coming up this weekend. If you haven't bought your tickets yet, can't encourage you enough to do so. You can also do that at 1160hope.com. And I will be there. Brian will be in Florida. Yep. Uh, I'll be there in spirit. He'll be there in spirit. That's right. (laughs) Cindy, I'm interested. Can you just tell us a little bit about Heartbeat International? What's the goal as an organization? Well, Heartbeat International um, has three main purposes, to reach and rescue as many women as possible. Um, There are women who are struggling with unplanned pregnancy, and our goal is to come alongside them to make sure they have what they need, that they have information and support, that, that no woman feels like she has to choose end the life of her unborn child uh, because she's unsupported. The Christian community has the answers. We have hope. We can deliver that well. Pregnancy centers across the globe are doing that. So we reach and rescue as many women and babies as possible. And then we renew communities through the good work of the pregnancy help organizations across the globe that are changing the culture of their communities to the culture of life. Oh, that's fascinating. That's such good work you guys are doing. And I'm, I'm thinking specifically, what does Heartbeat International do to help reach the women or her family who are right now uh, contemplating abortion? Right. Uh, Heartbeat's option line um, is our 24-7, 365 days a year helpline. We are answering the phone. In fact, I was in option line. It's two doors down from our Uh, my office, an option line will probably answer well over 1,100 to 1,200 cries for help today. Wow. There's a women across the U.S. that connect with us who say, I'm pregnant. Those are boyfriends who connect with us and say, my girlfriend's pregnant. We're not sure what we want to do. Those are grandparents who call in and say, help us understand what our options are. We have extraordinary things that are happening on the phone lines, whether it's phone call, text, email or chat, 
those things are happening 24-7. So while we are looking forward to Easter dinner with our family and friends, uh, we will be answering phones on Mm -hmm. Easter Day on that Sunday. So we are there for women 24-7. A heartbeat option line makes a complete difference for those who are struggling with an unplanned pregnancy and need hope. They need light at the end of the tunnel, and we know that the best thing for a woman who's facing an unplanned pregnancy, the best thing we can do for her is give her someone to stand with her. And wow. that is exactly what pregnancy centers across the nation are doing. Wow. Wow. That's fantastic. Okay. If you're just joining us, we're chatting with Cindy Boston, the vice president of Heartbeat International, uh, who also happen to be the sponsors of the Fernando Ortega concert this Saturday. You can learn more about them and the concert by simply going to 1160hope.com. And Cindy, I read recently that Heartbeat took over management of the Abortion Pill Rescue Network. And uh, I'm, I didn't even know what that was. Can you just tell us a little bit more about that? Yes. Uh, Did you know that in 2019, we will see likely more than 40% of all abortions happen um, through a chemical abortion process, RU486. Chemical abortion is a sad and a lonely abortion. It's where women take that first abortion pill uh, in the doctor's office, and then they go home and they complete the second pill, and they complete that process of of aborting their child by themselves. It's Mm. such a sad thing. Mm. It's a lonely process for women. It is a sad thing that women feel so alone and so desperate that they make that decision. So Abortion Pill Rescue Network was developed by Dr. George Delgado. He He brought in and refined a process that literally can snatch that pregnancy back to life. It, it, it robs uh, that situation of a second abortion pill, which is a two-pill process, and it brings in a flood of progesterone through a, uh, an exact diagnosis, an exact amount, and it revives the pregnancy back to life. Wow. So literally, we are saving a child who is already starting to be aborted. Isn't that amazing? That is amazing. Wow. We are rescuing those babies. Wow. So people out there listening in their cars and they're going, yeah, you know what? I feel passionately about this. I want to uh, help save babies. I want to you know, give people hope. What are some very specific things that listeners could do to get involved in Heartbeat International's mission? Yes, I think uh, the first thing is to pray. We, you know, we were all heartbroken when we saw what was happening in New York City and the celebration yeah. of death and the robbing of life from among us. We have a passion to pray for the unborn and for the women who are making a life-and-death decision, and they're alone. We want prayer for women like that and young couples and families who are dealing with this issue to pray. The second thing they can do is they can come to the concert and they can hear about the life-saving work of Heartbeat International Mm. every single four minutes of every single day. We see a life saved somewhere across the globe through our Heartbeat International affiliates. So there's so much to be done, and there's so much to learn about Heartbeat. So come out to the concert this Saturday night. It's going to be a fantastic evening. And the final thing is, it only costs us to save a baby's life through the Abortion Pill Rescue Network. It only costs $75 to help one woman and save one life. It's such an amazing return on investment to know I gave $75. I am going to help a woman save the life of her child. There's nothing better than that, really, if Mm -hmm. you think about it, as far as a $75 
investment. Wow. Wow. Well, thank you. Thank you for all the work that you're doing in the world. We've been chatting with Cindy Boston, who's the vice president of Heartbeat International. And Heartbeat International uh, is not only the sponsor for the concert this Saturday, the Fernando Ortego concert, uh, but is also doing some incredible work in the world. And you can learn more about Heartbeat International by simply going to 1160hope.com. You can click the banner at the top there. You can also learn more about the concert that's happening this Saturday, March 23rd in Orland Park. We would love to see you. I'll be there. Brian will be in Florida, unfortunately. But <laughs> come, and, uh, come and say hi to us. Cindy, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. You're so welcome. God bless. You too. Likewise. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simkins, along with Brian Fromm, a show all about diving into the mess and the gray and the tense, the stuff that doesn't tie up with a nice, easy bow, because I think if we're honest, that's where most of our lives typically are, but also, hopefully, to elevate the common. What are the things that we share in common, the things that we can talk about, to lean in rather than to kind of continue shouting back and forth at each other online? And we'd love to hear from you, ironically, online. on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. You can also go to 1160hope.com. Uh, all the previous shows are there. But I am absolutely thrilled to have on the phone right now not one, but two guests, Shane Claiborne and Mike Martin. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Hey, hey. Good to, good to be with you. <laughs> let, me, let me just give you a little bit of their bio because they just wrote a new book called Beating Guns, Hope for People Who Are Weary of Violence. And uh, just a little bit about who they are. Shane is a prominent speaker, activist, and best-selling author. He's worked with Mother Teresa in Calcutta and founded The Simple Way in Philadelphia. Mike Martin is the founder and executive director of Raw Tools, which partners with communities in an effort to repurpose weapons for creative and productive uses, which I think is absolutely fascinating. And one of the things that um, you guys mentioned in this book is this idea of unlearning violence. And I'm I'm so fascinated by that idea. How, first off, what what does that look like? And second, um, is that actually possible? <laughs> well, you know, I, I like how uh, it was Mandela that said that uh, you know no one is born hating another person, but mm. people have to learn to hate. And if they can learn to hate, then they can be taught to love. Mm. For love comes more naturally to the human heart. And, uh, you know, I mean, from the earliest days of our lives, we, we were, we see murder on TV, we see, you know, video games and all that. So it's certainly something that we're socialized into. Um, and even in the church, sometimes, you know, we're, we're taught, uh, uh, a God that, that sometimes is a God of violence. It's easy to hate, but hard to, or easy to fear, but hard to love. Mm. And so, you know, we, we keep turning back to Jesus as a way to unlearn violence. And uh, Mike, you know, he spends a lot of time at the forge, so he often talks about the fire of the forge as sort of a, a symbol of the Spirit. You, you should say a little bit about that. Yeah, when if anybody's 
not familiar with the forge, it, it glows to about 2,000 degrees for us to put the gun barrels in there. And wow. when the gun barrels heat up, when the gun barrels heat up, they become as orange as the fire. So it's hard to distinguish that gun barrel from the fire. Hmm. When we talk about that being uh, how we put ourselves in the presence of God, and we often take on the character of God. But when we're removed from that fire, we change color and we look a little bit different. So it's important for us to stay close to the forge and to the fire. And uh, one of our friends last night talked about that, you know, that the the burning bush kind of takes on a similar fire that the forge puts out. So there's Hmm. there's a lot of connection to the presence of God uh, biblically, but also as we see in our lives and our work with gun violence. Wow. There's a fascinating uh, quote in your guys' book, and it's simply this, and I would just love to hear, uh, have you talk about it a little bit and expound on it. You say, Christians cannot carry both a cross in one hand and a weapon in the other. Like, I read that and I was like, whoa, <laughs> that one just kind of sat. So could you talk about that quote a little bit? Yes, yeah, so it's pretty clear that, that the cross and the gun give us two different versions of power, mm. <laughs> you know, and, um, and, you know, that's why when we talk about guns, we don't think it's too extreme to talk about them as idols, because idols are things that we attribute godlike power to, but they are not God, but mm. we treat them like they are, you know, so yeah. this idea that we, we can protect ourselves, that we can determine our futures, all these empty promises that guns make, and, but yet you look at Jesus, and Jesus from the moment he's born until he dies, um, enters into a violent world and never mirrors that violence. He mm. teaches us to uh, love our enemies and, to, you know, blessed are the merciful, turn the other cheek. And one of the stories we've been telling every night is when Peter, who's been learning, you know, from Jesus right beside him, um, uh, he the soldiers come to get Jesus, and Peter picks up a sword and cuts off one of the guy's ears. Right. And, and Jesus rebukes Peter and tells yeah. him, put your sword back. You still don't get it, you know. And then he puts the ear back on the guy, and which is pretty cool. Right. <laughs> the, early, <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> the early Christians said when Jesus disarmed Peter, he disarmed every Christian. Because mm. if ever there was a, 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 you know, a, a case for standing your ground, mm. Peter had a the, the you know case uh but but jesus teaches us a different way to interact with a violent world than by mirroring it and that's fascinating okay so I, I don't know that everyone listening necessarily knows um the work that you're doing with you know kind of in the tradition of the prophets turning swords into plowshares which actually anecdotally was the name of my first blog ever i think on <laughs> zanga.com but um that's something that you're you're actually doing and mike you're you know you're a, a blacksmith can you talk a little bit behind the the vision of that because i feel like more than ever, this prophetic imagination is is so needed, and uh, I'm really I'm really fascinated by the, the work that you're doing specifically. Could you just kind of unpack that a little bit? Tell people what you do, why you're doing it this way, and maybe what led to that. Yeah, well, Walter Brueggemann's book, The Prophetic Imagination, was a big part of, of yes. kind of forming raw tools. But a lot of what raw tools does, raw is war backwards, so it's. Hmm. Turning, turning things around, there's an idea of lament and repentance inside that, and we view everything through the lens of restorative justice. So we're not just looking for, for justice in a punitive fashion, but we're looking for justice that repairs harm. Mm. Uh, one, of the, one of the stories we tell in this book is uh, from my friend Charletta Evans, who was in Denver when her uh, three-year-old was shot in a random gang drive-by, just trying—some other teenagers were oh. trying to impress a local gang— 
and she uh, she explains this process of forgiveness for her as only thing that she can explain it is that she was had the presence of the spirit ask her if she was going to forgive and if she would forgive. Wow. And within 24 hours, she did that. And fast forward 20 years, she's gone through restorative justice dialogue with uh, both the, the teen at the time who pulled the trigger and the teen who was driving. And that's just a, a quick sample of what restorative justice can look like. And that's really what Swords to Plowshares is, that you have mm. to go away from from this gun that promises the illusion of some sort of justice and some sort of uh, conflict resolution towards a plowshare that requires you to slow down and really depend on a seasonal patience. You have to plant the seed, you have to take care of it, you have to wait for the harvest, and then you mm. rest. There's a period of rest between the harvest and when you plant the next seed. And it really, it really begs for community involvement mm. and knowing your neighbors and what's going on in your community. Yeah, That's beautiful. In the book, you guys talk about uh, there being uh, your fear almost that there's a gun violence fatigue in our culture and in our country. Um, why do you, first of all, do you think there's a gun violence fatigue? And if so, why do you think there is so much apathy now growing towards gun violence? I, I think that there's, an, there's a disappointment with politicians and leadership. I, I, think, I think people, um, you know, after Sandy Hook, when 20 kids were massacred and six adults, people said never again. Mm-hmm. And yet there's been almost 2,000 mass shootings since Sandy Hook, wow. um, almost one a day. And that's what people are tired of. People are tired of thoughts and prayers after mm. every mass shooting, and they want some action. They want mm. to see, you know, you look at New Zealand after this terrible massacre, and within 24 hours they're making some major shifts in their country to try to keep it from happening again. Right. Um, so – you know, 90% of Americans want to see some basic changes like background checks and an end to assault weapons on the street, AR-15s and AK-47. But what we found that that was really stunning was an overwhelming majority of gun owners want to see changes made as well. Wow. So they, they want to see things like mm. uh, a minimum wage and mandatory training and a um, uh, background checks, and if you're on a no-fly list, you should be on a no-gun list. And if you're, mm. you know, if you've con- been convicted of domestic violence, you shouldn't have a gun. Things like that. So um, we're we're really hopeful, and and everywhere we're going, we're not seeing apathy. We're seeing people rising up, saying enough. Wow, wow, that's fascinating. Okay, so if you're just joining us, we've been talking with Shane Claiborne and Michael Martin. Uh, coming up next, we're going to continue talking about their new book, Beating Guns. Hope for people who are weary of violence here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm, a show all about taking a deep dive into the mess when we're kind of tempted to stay in our echo chambers and confirmation biases. We want to create a space for dialogue to even disagree to argue but to hopefully you know create space to actually listen to one another and we'd love to hear from you you can find us on facebook at the common good radio show or 1160hope.com and i'm absolutely thrilled to continue the conversation with shane claiborne and michael martin on the phone who just wrote a new book called beating guns hope for people who are weary of violence and uh, it's pretty obvious that you guys did a ton of research for this specific book I- i'm really curious what what surprised you in that journey? Like, what did you find that just you weren't expecting in preparing to write this book? Well, one of the things that surprised me, uh, this is Shane, you know, as I was reading uh, some of the, the – there, there were a lot of things that jumped out. But one of the things that was stunning was 
that uh, gun owners in America and Americans overwhelmingly want to see some basic changes happen. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, like, for instance, the NRA is kind of the National Rifle Association has kind of monopolized the the conversation, um, but they, they say they represent 5 million people. Um, but th- if that's true, that means that over 90% of gun owners are not represented by the NRA. Hmm. And, um, and, and more and more gun owners find themselves at odds with kind of gun extremists that are uncompromising on some basic policies. Um, I mean, there's, there's so many things that we learned that were, were just wild, you know, but even looking at the history of, the Second Amendment, you know, when that was written, gunshot like one round, maybe two rounds a minute. And right. now we have guns that shoot 100 rounds a minute. And folks are going, wow, we just got to rethink like how we can protect lives. And, mm. and in, in many ways, we've done better at protecting guns than protecting people. And mm. we can do better. You know, we're not going to save all lives, but we can certainly save some. Yeah, we right. can do better than 105 lives lost every day. Mm. And so we all know how the gun debate goes, whether it be on TV or in the kitchen table, right? Like when you want to, whenever you talk gun control, people are immediately saying you're trying to take away my constitutional freedom and you're trying to, you know, get all guns away. How do you answer that just for people who are turning this on right now going, oh, these guys just want to take away my freedoms? I think it's really easy to jump to that conclusion without realizing what actually has to get done for that to happen. Uh, something like taking away the Second Amendment would require upwards of 34 governors to sign on to that. And there's mm. just so much so much that has to happen legislatively, and that takes a ton of time. Um, but I think that I think that the the common point that we're we're telling in a lot of our our tour stops is that we need to listen to each other's stories, yeah, yeah, and kind of get below all of those talking point questions. Totally. Why do you feel it's necessary to? own a gun or not own a gun? Why do you not lock your gun and keep it loaded somewhere, even though there's kids in your home? Why are you making these decisions? And when we hear the stories, then we can start um, offering maybe different solutions to those people who uh, feel like that's their only protection when there are a lot of other better ways. A gun in the home is more likely to be used against you or someone you love than it is against an intruder, and it's that much more likely to be used against women and minorities. Hmm. Wow. Okay. So, so both of you just alluded to this then that there, when it comes to gun control, regardless of where you land in the debate, everyone's kind of blood pressure tends to rise a little bit. And in in the book, you go after a couple of myths that I, f- I found really fascinating. Can you can you explain a couple of those? What are some of the gun control myths that that so often, you know, when we're not learning people's stories, sort of just remain the the rhetoric of our time? I'd be I'd be really fascinated to hear your perspective on some of those. Yeah. Well, first of all, you know, when when people say that it's not a gun problem, it's a heart problem. One of the things that's so important to us is that we insist that it's both, mm. you know, and you, you could get rid of every gun and we would still find ways to kill each other. Yeah, we right. saw, you know, someone use a pressure cooker as a weapon in the Boston Marathon. Right. So we, we will find ways to kill each other. But the fact is that that we uh, guns make people's capacity to do violence like so much larger, you mm. know, and, and when you have um, guns that can shoot a hundred rounds in a minute, you know, things like that, that is, what we're talking about is like not being anti-gun as much as pro-life, you know, yeah. I mean, like what can we do to like better protect lives? Right. Um, so, yeah, when it comes to some of those myths, um, um, I mean, one of them is, is that this idea that, we um, 
need guns to protect ourselves, but we show a ton of different data that, that shows that a gun is much more likely to uh, be used in a suicide or mm. in an accident than it is to protect yourself, and especially for abused women. They're five times more likely to be a victim of homicide if there is a gun in the home, and de wow. domestic abusers often become uh, folks that commit the domestic homicide. Mm. Um, so what's also true is that we kind of learned, you know, growing up, this stranger danger idea, but the fact is that the person who's most, most likely to kill us usually has a key to our house mm. or is someone that we already know. Yeah. Wow. So you guys are on, not, you didn't just write the book, you're also on what you're calling the Beating Guns Tour. I think you even told us you're on the bus right now, I think is what you <laughs> said. Uh, tell us a little bit about what happens at a Beating Guns event and what has the response been uh, in the different cities you've been to already? It's kind of a culmination of a lot of events that Shane and I have done together over the last six years where we invite people to share their stories from the community. We hear from local artists, uh, whether that's spoken word or music, that uh, kind of theme towards restoration and justice and nonviolence and grief and pain that they're going through. Um, and then we talk a little bit about the book. But one of the most powerful parts is when we invite everybody to come outside to the forge and they surround the forge and, and mothers and family members and friends who have been affected by gun violence approach the anvil and pick up a hammer and beat on the barrel of a gun. Wow. And then and then at the same time, we're asking the other folks in, in the audience to participate with them by putting um, some flash paper that they've written the triggers of their hearts uh on this on this little flash paper it's kind of a magic paper that disappears once right. it's consumed by fire and so that's that's one of the ways we're dealing with the triggers in our hearts and the triggers in our streets we've got the the people who have been through it beating mm -hmm. on the barrel of a gun and maybe those who are uh more separated not quite out there they're further out in the ripples uh are trying to deal with the the, the part of our hearts that might tempt us to use violence wow. um, but then we get we get to celebrate and and take a look at the garden tool that we made at the end, mm. and we leave with hope that there are there are tangible ways forward to to reduce gun violence. Wow, that's beautiful. Yeah, and every every city we're going to, we've had people bring guns, you know, and and there's there's more guns than people in our country, over 300 mm. million guns, and so every place we're going, people are bringing everything from uh, an AR-15 to a handgun to guns in a home that were used in a a, a, a suicide, um, things like that. So it's very healing. There's kind of a ritual to it. Um, and we invite people to consider the, you know, the violence in our own hearts, but then also to turn towards gun violence in our streets. And, uh, so it's, it's a, a beautiful and holy way to spend this season leading up to Easter. And we're, you know, a dozen cities in now we've got 20 more. So wow. folks can see it all at beatingguns.com and, uh, uh, come visit us and be a part of it at the, when we come to a city near you. That's fantastic. We'll be in Chicago, yeah, we'll be there in Chicago for two days. You, do you happen to know the dates of the the Chicago trip? Coming up, yeah, Coming up. <laughs> <laughs> For, forthcoming. <laughs> well, we'll find yeah, we'll find we're, that we'll out. We'll be there uh, April eighth and ninth. April eighth uh, and ninth in the Chicago area. Yeah, and then we'll be in Indiana the tenth and tenth. Uh, yeah, That's great. so. That's outstanding. We can hardly keep track. Of, uh, <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> I can't. Yeah, no kidding. Well, okay, so one of the things, one of the reasons that I love books, that I love print media still, is that there's no 
There's no like comment section. There's no like so often we just jump to our responses and we like listen to respond, not listen to understand. And I imagine yeah. you have people on both sides of the aisle of different theological bents diving into this book for the people that you would encourage to at least pick it up, at least give it a shot. What, what do you hope people do after reading this book? We really want people to ask the question, like, especially those of us that may be Christians, like, what does it mean to be pro-life on this issue? Mm. Can we do a better job at protecting life? And, you know, even when we think about the automobile technology as it evolved, you know, we added seatbelts, we require driver's license, we do research to figure out how we can make them safer. We, you know, you have to pass a test before you drive one, you know, yada, 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 there's speed limits and so on. But the gun, um, the guns, we've, we have almost this immunity to any change or evolution on it. Um, even things like technology, we, we, we know that we have fingerprint technology that mm. would save so many lives if we had, in a sense, smart guns, like we have smartphones that, you know, one every minute a gun is stolen in the United States. And they're not even required in some states to report stolen guns. So wow. this is part of our problem. And we just know that we can do better, and so do most Americans. So, um, yeah, one of our favorite T-shirts was these hunters that came, and they said, we're hunters against assault weapons. Because you don't need huh. 10 guns to shoot a deer if you're a good hunter. <laughs> Man, I, I got to get me one of those shirts. Shoot. <laughs> well, gentlemen, I know that you're in the middle of a tour right now, and I can't thank you enough for taking the time to be with us today. We've been listening to Shane Claiborne and Michael Martin, authors of the new book, Beating Guns, Hope for People Who Are Weary of Violence. You can learn more about the book or the tour they're currently on at beatingguns.com. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, awesome. We'll see you in Chicago, man. Outstanding. Can't, Can't wait. This has been The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. Diving into the mess, the gray, the tense. It's not always tense. Sometimes it's just the stuff that's confusing. Just the stuff that... We want to be the kind of hosts that regularly say, I don't know. I don't have an answer for that. Let's talk about it. And we would love to hear from you. So let's talk to someone like Shane Claiborne like we just did. And yeah. Man, no that kidding. was awesome. No kidding. That was, a, that was a fantastic interview. So grateful for them. Uh, okay. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. You can also go to 1160hope.com. Plus, the show is podcasted. You can listen at twice the speed like some of my friends do, <laughs> which I'm just honored that they listen at yes. all, to be to be totally honest. And uh, so, okay, you and I are both pastors, but yep. we pastor uh, in pretty different churches, yep. and the infrastructure is a little different. I know that our, our weekly rhythms are a little different, and uh, one of the things that we spend a lot of time thinking about is the sermon, right? That's yep. uh, probably not that surprising. Maybe it is surprising. Like, oh, they think about it. The amount of times people have said, oh, just— Share what's on your heart. I'm like, I that's know. That's not that's a, a, that's not a, that's not a good idea. Totally. <laughs> but I'm I'm uh, I'm curious. And I've been reading uh, from a number of different places about um, the mechanics of the sermon. And one of the things that uh, I learned coming to the Yellow Box was that the, it's a it's a pretty consistent 25 minute message. Where historically I was preaching 40 45 minutes. Really? I was. Consistent. I've always been a 25 minute. You always preaching have guy too. Yeah. Why? Why? Why is that? Just what I learned. I think when I, you know, you you are you do what you learn. So I'm anywhere from 25 to 30, I would say. But if I hit 30, it, that's probably the top end of what I normally do. Okay. And 
I just feel like that's all I got to say. <laughs> I, honestly, I think that's I'm a really also, honest way to go about it. And though. I'm also such a creature of habit. So, like, literally, and I know you and I are probably very different. I'm probably much more structured. I still, to this day, after, you know, 10 years of preaching on a regular basis, I still write out it. I write it word for word. Oh, see, I don't do that at all. And then I, and then I kind of, I have a very specific way that I do it. And so I know when I write it out for the first time, Literally, how many words is going to equal how much time? Oh, so I've wow. got kind of a target I shoot for. I know you and I, I without ever having watched you prepare, I know we're different. <laughs> I would love to get more like that, though. And again, historically, you and know, I'd get to. I'd rather be less like that. You're probably somewhere in the middle. Really? We could learn from each other. I'm guessing. I think so. Well, and you know, previously, I would, I would pretty regularly just invite people out for coffee and share with them kind of my outline to kind yeah. of get some thoughts before preaching it. Oh, interesting. But at community, though, we have a whole teaching team. And every message is written collaboratively. So there's always two writers, but then there's like another four people that listen to the first read through. And there's a research team that we work with. And like, it's a, it's a pretty amazing process because it's men and women, old and young, um, all kind of weighing in. So the, the final sermon is actually, there's been a lot of eyes, a lot of influence. That's really cool. I've never really, I'm very impressed as I've gotten to know you and other people at your church about the process. Like Ted Canaris, I've gotten to know him. Right. And the, the collaborative process, I've never worked in that scenario. So now I'm much more like how you would expect how it's been through the years, right? Like, yeah, right. Here's the text. I'm going to read a bunch and right. I'm going to sit at Panera or a Starbucks and I'm going to write. Right. And then I've got to judge whether I like what it came out or yeah, not. Totally. So I really, I do enjoy the way you guys do it. Well, one of the things that I imagine we both spend a lot of time thinking about isn't just the actual sermon itself, but right. is this resonating? Is it mm-hmm. connecting? Is it... Is it bringing healing or hope, or is it challenging the way that I wanted to? And so, I, you know, I'm pretty, pretty obsessively reading about ways to improve, ways to tackle it, yep. um, even like color coding my notes. One of the things I came across this article um, by Christina Walker. She's talking about uh, rethinking the 30 minute sermon lecture model, yep. Yep. and uh, I'm I'm fascinated because it seems like her big premise is we need to give more space for questions, right? Which you and I, I think, would both say currently are like sermon format. Does not does not allow at least in the moment doesn't yeah. allow for questions at all. But she kind of unpacks much more intelligently than I'm outlining right now some of the brain science and some of why it's important to actually create space. But right. that the lecture model isn't totally broken either, though. We still see that in colleges and different formats. What? How do you differentiate between like uh, a teaching lecture and a sermon? Is there a difference? Is there wisdom in this article to rethink maybe some of the the tactics of sermon giving? I think so because a lecture. Uh, think about your lecture in school. Like this is probably too simplified, but the goal of a lecture is to impart knowledge. Yeah, right. It is to. You're at a chemistry lecture. They want you to understand chemistry and hmm. be able to. Uh, the goal of a sermon is not just knowledge. It's not just information. It's right. also inspiration, right? And it's it's life change. Hmm. And um, obviously, we believe the Holy Spirit is ultimately the one who brings life change. But there are ways that we preach yeah. that can also. Um, make the sermon, for lack of a better way of saying, sticky, like yeah, to right. stick on them. Right. Um, and so I think this concept of questions is great because you're allowing people to process what they're hearing um, and try to apply it, as opposed to us going, well, how do we apply this? Because you and I have this every week, right? You get off the stage going, well, hope that worked. Hope <laughs> yeah, that was right, good. Right. <laughs> um, but the flip side is, and this is what I like that she did in this, and I'd love to hear your thoughts. Just to, I don't think it is also a good idea just to have open question time, mm. especially at a church your size, uh, even at a church my size, where anybody can hijack it. 
Yeah, right. First right, hand right. raised, I'm going to call on you. Right. It's kind of that same feel like when you just have open mic prayer time and that, mm. that one person <laughs> just hijacks the mic and you're sure. like, well, we shouldn't have done that. And so I do think there's some nuance, like how do we let people ask questions? Right. And, and in what venue do we address these questions, I think is really important. Because I don't think, like I don't read this article and be like, all right, next week I'm just going to let people raise their hands or right. interrupt or in the middle. Like I don't think that's helpful either. Uh, so I do think there's got to be some strategy. Totally. But her point is 100% correct, I think, that we've got to be giving a venue a way for people to interact probably in real time with how do I get how, – how am I process? Here's a question that comes up. Can you help me with that? Yeah, and I wonder if there's a way to uh, utilize technology you know, in a way that people could like text a question in real time while they're thinking about it. And then after the big gathering, you have a smaller gathering maybe hosted by a number of people, and you kind of – you kind of walk through not all of them, but some of the questions that were raised. There's probably some things that we could leverage technology, right. but I think what you said is important because even over the weekend, we both were talking about this article that's talking about like church is a physical space yeah. is dead, right? It's all it's all digital now, and and the premise I think that's problematic is that if the church only is the impartation of information, right. then that article makes sense. But I believe it to be so much more than that, and I, I remember being convicted pretty early on. I had a mentor come in and see me preach, and he said, uh, when we were done, he's like, you clearly put a lot of work in that, but if all you're going to do is commentate, just buy them all a commentary. Pre- <laughs> preaching is different yes. than just simply, this is what this Greek word is, and let me get to the Strong's Concordance. And so that balance of like storytelling and poetry, I- I've been challenged even recently to, to think less about um, what's the application here and more about what's the response. Mm. Because sometimes the response is to sit in it to yep. or to grieve or to be still. And, so, you know, we get in this like application mindset that if our sermons are nothing more than what you're saying, like the impartation of knowledge and then three bullet points to go live differently. Right. Um, that has some implications that I don't know are always helpful. Yeah. But how do you actually, it's kind of what I like about our process because there's so many people involved in it that some of the question stuff happens in the brainstorm. That's good. And in the different drafts, because it's just, you know, like we're pastors, but we're sort of normal people too. So we like, hey, what does this mean, or how do we understand yeah. that? How do we unpack that? So some of that, some of those questions are happening before the sermons actually preached, which I think is maybe helpful. Interesting. One of my struggles as a preacher is the other way of what you're describing there. Uh, I don't struggle with commentating or too much knowledge. I can jump to the practical really fast. Oh, interesting. And if there's ever feedback about my sermons, it's more like, could you sit? Help us know what's going oh. on here a little bit more. It's kind of like, well, I know. I've been sitting in this. I've been reading this. And she also talks about that in her article. She says, you know, there's something to be said about uh, having knowledge of your of what you're talking about. Yeah, and, right. Know your um, content well. Exactly. And so sometimes uh, you and I were kind of learning if we just combine each other, we'd be the world's greatest <laughs> preacher, right? Like sometimes, I don't know about that. <laughs> sometimes I – or the world's greatest radio show, one of the two. Oh, my goodness. Sometimes I feel like I don't spend enough of the time imparting the knowledge hmm. and try the information. And so uh, I do think that's an important part. But, yeah, then the obvious question, like the old pastor I knew, right, he would always say – He's like, I'd spend the first 10 to 15 minutes on the what? And then literally he'd have his whole congregation yell, so what? <laughs> and like they would talk about, like, what's the point? And so this is helpful. I don't know the right answer for how you let the people ask the questions other than the one-on-one meetings and this and that. Yeah. Something to think about. I think that's a it's a good point about our learning styles these days. And I think in general, too, uh, regardless of what what a, kind of church you're at, um, if, if your pastor is putting even a little bit of themselves into it, he or she is also kind of letting their heart be exposed. Yeah. So give good feedback, 
Uh, but also sometimes, yeah, go gentle on us because there is some artistry. There's some vulnerability, I think, in good preaching is a little bit of like, this is what God's doing yeah. in my life, to be honest. And I can't tell you how many times in the middle of a sermon I've realized, oh, those words staring back at me are for me. Yeah. I'm being convicted by this. Like, yeah. I'm not living this way. Yeah. And I think that those are the the incarnational sermons where we're living it together, I think, are, are honestly some of That's the best. Good. Well, it's been a pretty heavy day in general, man, and I think uh, it's appropriate then to end, as we always do, uh, with just a little bit of fun, a little bit of hilarity, insanity that we found on the interwebs, and uh, that's how we end the show each and every day. So that's coming up next on The Common Good, right here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Welcome back to The Common Good Friends. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, a show all about diving into the mess, the gray, the tense, the stuff that doesn't have easy answers, isn't always black and white. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show or at 1160hope.com. And uh, today today we tackled some some heavy topics, and so I think it's all the more appropriate to end coming up for air a little bit. Yep. And uh, we've recently shifted the way that we do this particular segment Historically, we call this the disclaimer. <laughs> yeah, the disclaimer is necessary because it used to be us finding some ridiculous stories and then laughing about them and kind of closing the show out. So what we've been doing is our producers are selecting the stories for us, and they're currently face down on the desk. I'm ready. And we're just going to flip them over and read them. And uh, so if it's awful, you, Not can't, our fault. you can't blame us. It's Josh and Keith. Uh, so why don't, you, why don't you kick us off with your first Here one there? Here we go. Oh, boy. Florida. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Customer saved himself by getting hot sauce before car crashed in the table at the Taco Bell. Oh, wow. <laughs> a customer moved out of the path of a car right before it slammed into a Winter Haven Taco Bell. Uh, Emmanuel Akua, 77 years old, told police he was backing out of a parking spot and put the car back into drive. The car jumped a curb and crashed through the window. Neither the him or the passenger were injured. But the police say a customer was seated right in the path of the crash, but he got oh, up wow. to grab hot sauce packets before the car went into the building and he was saved. Bravo! That'll be hard to top. I pity the next tale of interest. <laughs> I do also feel like this is the second story of Taco Bell hot sauce yes. saving somebody yes. in the last week. So Taco Bell, if you want to sponsor the show, Taco Bell, uh, <laughs> Brian and I are both more than open to that possibility. Okay, here we go. Florida again. <laughs> Florida man robbed store dressed as Spider-Man. Oh, my gosh. Yes, he did. A Florida man is behind bars after robbing a store disguised as Spider-Man. Deputies said a man showed up uh, unmasked. Well, that's not like Spider-Man. Unmasked to a Winn-Dixie wine and spirit store in Castleberry, Florida on January 2nd. He leaves, but when he returns, this time he's wearing a Spider-Man <laughs> mask. Police said Edward Wilburn stole nearly $150 in liquor and $420 Whoa. in Newport cigarettes. Whoa. Wilburn was arrested back in January. Wilburn is a repeat offender, hopefully not the Spider-Man. It's just different <laughs> comic characters, according to the Seminole County Sheriff's Office. Look up! Here comes the Spider-Man! <laughs> Ridiculous. Maryland. Sure. Oh, man in unicorn costume robs convenience store. I'm sensing a theme today. <laughs> a man dressed as a unicorn and wielding a crowbar oh, robbed no. a convenience store in Baldwin Saturday morning. No. At about 5.22 a.m., police responded to a report of a robbery. After stealing money and cigarettes, there's our theme again. Jeez Louise. The man in the unicorn costume fled the scene and soon after crashed his car near the intersection. Officers located the man at the scene of the accident, according to police. He was taken to the hospital. 
the man's identity and condition uh, were not immediately available. His identity was the unicorn. <laughs> now there's something you don't see every day. <laughs> True. I feel like the sound bites True. are more generic today True. than story specific. All right, Oklahoma. T-shirt gun used to launch contraband into <laughs> Oklahoma prison. Oh, no. I really got to read these ahead of time. An Oklahoma woman was arrested after authorities say she used a T-shirt gun to launch drugs, cell phones, and other contraband over a prison fence. The Oklahoma Department of Correction says the incident prompted a lockdown at the North Fork North Fork Correctional Unit Careful. in Seattle. No kidding. She's Louise in Sayre, about 120 miles west of Oklahoma City. The agency says authorities arrested Carrie Joe Hickman after discovering the T-shirt gun and another package in her vehicle. Oh, my goodness. Gentlemen, you had my curiosity, but now you have my attention. <laughs> All right. Last, Last one. one, man. Land on the plane. North Carolina. Thrift shop warns furniture may be haunted. Oh, dear. A North Carolina thrift sh- uh, thrift store's social media post is going viral after warning customers about a couple of haunted pieces of furniture. The Habitat for Humanity resource uh, Restore of Rowan County posted photos to Facebook of a queen canopy bed frame and a high boy chest of drawers that the previous owner said were haunted. The post included a photo of the note posted on the pieces. Please note, previous owner reports that the high boy is haunted. He reports continuous nightmares for he and his wife while it was in their room. He also reports the dogs would not stop barking at it. Store operations director said the viral post led to a flurry of attention. Actually, a lot of people were interested because it was haunted. Our donations manager asked about these pieces and was told, you don't want those. They're haunted. Oh, Why did the people burn them? Why did they give them? <laughs> Brady said question. he felt it was important to disclose the potential of this. We're Christian ministry, he said. We oh. don't say we believe in ghosts or don't, but I have trouble selling this to someone, not disclosing that. I'd want to know as a customer. The items were purchased this week by a man named Ricky Scott, who paid $1,000 for both pieces. And he said, yeah, I don't really care that they think they're haunted. Oh, my goodness. Good evening. As a duly designated representative of the city, county, and state of New York, I order you to cease any and all supernatural activity and return forthwith to your place of origin or to the nearest convenient parallel dimension. (laughs) That ought to do it. Thanks very much, Ray. <laughs> oh, man, I feel like you really like that story. You I took did. a deep dive in, man. I did. Shoot. Man, it's been a good day a good full day. of twists and turns, man. I'm grateful. I hope you had a good time. Uh, join us again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. on The Common Good right here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.